You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change and when should we start building our rafts? Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything. available everywhere you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Jen from Ancient History Fangirl. And yes, we're still technically on hiatus, but we're bringing you some of our favorite blasts from the past. So this episode is one of my favorite episodes from season two, that magical season. It's also the first episode that I actually wrote for the podcast. Sorry, Jenny. I really let you uh, do so much of the writing up until now. I was carrying your ass for a real long time. She really was. She was She was Cleopatraing my Mark Antony ass. Not gonna lie. I knew it was gonna turn out that way if we had a podcast. I was just like, oh man, we're gonna do this for two months and never speak to each other again. But surprisingly, we do still speak to each other. And I'm shocked about that every day. Six seasons. <laughs> The process of writing this first episode and doing the research and juggling my full-time job was completely overwhelming at times. It was a really difficult time in my life, and I'm just so grateful that Jenny was here to help me, to give me really good advice, and to edit this episode into the fun, epic hot mess of golden eagle-loving nonsense that it is. So I started writing this episode on a balcony in Corfu while on holiday with Jenny and my husband. And I finished writing it in the Great Hall of the British Museum, right next to the statue of Caligula. Well, I mean, technically, it's a statue of a Roman youth riding a horse that we think could have been Caligula, but I'm going with it is Caligula. So all this long-winded nonsense is to say that this episode will always have a special place in my heart. It really tells one of those huge, sweeping historical dramas that made me fall in love with ancient history. But it's also a dark and twisting family drama. It's about epic figures in history living somewhat normal lives for the ancient world. I mean, there's a lot of murder. There's a lot of jealousy. Yeah, murder is so relatable. (laughs) I mean, also there's incest and there's, you know, lots of poison. Anyway, I mean, it's the ancient world. (laughs) They're just like us. (laughs) So essentially, this is an ancient world soap opera. And soap operas are always my favorite stories. In this episode, you'll meet Germanicus the Manicus. Our Our blue-eyed prince! prince, Our our golden golden god! God. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Germanicus. Swoon, Germanicus, ghost babies. I think I'm pregnant now. (laughs) (laughs) You'll also meet his epic wife, Agrippina the Elder. She's one of my favorite women we've covered so far in ancient history. And you'll learn why it was terrible to be Augustus's heir. 
Hopefully, you'll be as captivated by this story as I was and want to continue on and listen to the rest of the Ancient World Stark Family series. I mean, there's more murder. There's more incest. There's more intrigue. There's more court drama. I mean, I just can't tell you how amazing the rest of the series is. I'm just here for the incest. (laughs) No, you're not. (laughs) I mean, she's not. She's really not. Maybe she is. I don't know. It just took a dark turn. It didn't have to, but it did. (laughs) Now it's starting to get gross. I'm sorry. Let's move on. (laughs) We'll be back from hiatus with season seven on September 2nd. Before then, if you want to keep getting new episodes from us and regular episodes ad-free, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ancient history fangirl. Membership starts at just $2 a month. And if you enjoy our podcast, please do rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. In the 20s AD, it really, really sucked to be a child of Germanicus. Imagine a happy, well-adjusted family. Parents who were devoted to each other and their six precocious children, three brothers and three sisters. This family has traveled across the Roman Empire. Following their illustrious parents, they have traveled to the wilds of Germania. They have visited the legendary city of Troy, the Oracle of Apollo, and to top it off, this family is next in line for the throne of Rome. Life is good. Life is perfect. But nothing good can ever stay, and this hard-won happiness hangs by a thread. It starts with a cough, a funny turn, a mysterious illness, and soon, everything they thought they knew about their life, about their family, and their world was over. Soon, there's nothing left but ashes and betrayals. This is the story of the family of Germanicus. The real-life ancient world Stark family, for you Game of Thrones fans. This family were descendants of Augustus and Mark Antony. This family contained one of the greatest military leaders of ancient Rome and two of the most depraved Roman emperors, Caligula and Nero, and three incredible women who defied emperors for justice or power. But no one starts their life as a monster. This is the story of six children and their adoring parents. Six happy and well-loved children, parents who were wildly in love with each other and destined to start a dynasty that would echo through the ages, all of whom would be dead before the age of 50. Five would be dead before the age of 30. I'm Jen McMenemy. And I'm Jenny Williamson. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. So, full disclosure, I became obsessed with this ancient world soap opera when I was working on a campaign for a book my company published. Literally obsessed to the point where both my husband and Jenny were getting kind of sick of me talking about the family of Germanicus every other sentence. The book is called Caligula by Simon Tierney, and we'll link to it in the show notes. You seriously cannot stop name-dropping Germanicus into every conversation we have. The Manicus. Yeah, and then you do that. (laughs) It's like we're talking about whether or not we want to go get gelato and Germanicus the Manicus comes up. If you don't put him into a conversation, are you even talking? Jen thinks that he likes raspberry. Doesn't like blueberry. He wouldn't trust blueberry, Belladonna. <clears throat> Unfortunate poisoning death. He wouldn't. He was a little suspicious <laughs> like that. <laughs> I'm a big historical fiction fan. I'm assuming some of you others out there are as well. Uh, no. Are you a big historical fiction fan, Jen? I am shocked. Shocked, I say. <laughs> <laughs> historical fiction, mythology, who knew? So when I found out that my company was publishing a new look at the life of Caligula, I was totally grabby hands. As I started reading the book, I became fascinated with this family. But who were 
were these people, Jenny? The more I dug into the story, the more I thought more people should really know this story. There's betrayal, murder, exile, murder, incest, murder, uh, an attempted murder by boat. And it's all like something off of a soap opera. I have a question about the murder. Yeah. Was there murder? There was so much murder. Okay, now I can get behind the story. I sounded way too gleeful there. (laughs) Yeah, you were really excited about the murder. (laughs) Sorry, guys. I'm not normally this excited about murder or ever excited about... I need to stop. I, I would say that that's actually not true. She's She gets excited about murder on a frequent basis. It's because I'm a true crime fan. You're just a weirdo, that's why. Shout out my favorite murder. We're going to move on. <laughs> the parents of this family, Germanicus and Agrippina the Elder, were Roman dynastic royalty. And I guess you could say the Kennedys, the British royal family, the Kardashians. But I think that for me, the best analogy is the Stark family from Game of Thrones. We're talking noble, loving, kind people who are just trying to get by in a dishonest world. Germanicus, the Ned Stark of our story, was clearly too good and too honorable for the time he was living in. And his wife, Agrippina. Oh, Germanicus. Is it too early in the podcast to say that? No, it's not. It's really not. I mean, he's he's so honorable, is he not? He's just so, he's just so good. He's so good. And his wife, Agrippina, the Catelyn Stark of this story, was fiercely loyal to her family, but with some serious blinders on about how to survive in the cruel world of politics. Germanicus and Agrippina didn't start out as an epic love story, but they totally became one, and you know that I'm all up on this because love stories are my catnip. They're her catnip, guys. They're such my catnip. Their marriage was very much like all Roman aristocratic marriages, arranged. Around 4 AD, the Emperor Augustus set up this marriage as a way to bring the two sides of the Julian-Claudian family together and help ease arguments about the future succession to the throne. All of the ancient sources tell us that they were madly in love. Agrippina followed her husband on campaign, even while pregnant, and she was basically always pregnant. I don't think there was a time when she was not pregnant. I feel like they were married for 14 years, and she was pregnant like 12 of them. I would say she was pregnant for a large majority of that time. Germanicus's family followed him even to dangerous areas of the empire where they were at war. Wherever Germanicus went, his family followed because he was their home. Germanicus was faithful to Agrippina, which was super rare in the ancient world. Was he a dude who was nice to his wife? Because that's super rare. I mean, yeah. From what I can see, he was a dude who was nice to his wife. And this really appeals to me because he reminded me a lot of Hector from the Iliad. And okay, Hector from the Iliad, might be like my ancient mythology crush. I'm sorry, guys. Germanicus is always described as this brutal general and soldier, but also a consummate family man, much like Hector of Troy, guys. Agrippina and Germanicus had a huge family with nine children in total, but only six of these children lived into adulthood. And we're going to focus on the six who lived because there's a lot of names. There are a lot of the same names cropping up, and we just don't want you guys to get too distracted. So the children in their birth order were... Nero, Drusus, Gaius, Agrippina the Younger, Julia Drusilla, and Julia Lavilla. All were born between AD 6 and 18. This is a 12-year span. Poor, poor Agrippina. Agrippina the Elder, or Caitlin Stark, was the granddaughter of the Emperor Augustus. Her mother was Julia the Elder, the only biological child of Augustus, who I will totally do an episode on because she was also fascinating. Agrippina the Elder's father was the famed Marcus Agrippa, close friend of Augustus and the master general who made all of Augustus's campaigns work. Augustus would have been nothing without Agrippa. 
Germanicus was the grandson of Mark Antony and the Emperor Augustus's sister, Octavia. This family tree, guys, was more of a circle. We will put it in the show notes, and I'll do like a proper tree where you can see the branches, but really, just think a circle. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's really awkward, that's all. Germanicus and Agrippina were already considered to be of the highest lineage in Rome, and their children were assured a place of power and privilege. And I like to think of them in modern times, Jenny, as celebrities with very carefully curated Instagrams. Germanicus's would have been all about the troops, carefully selected photos showing him on campaign, bonding with his soldiers, photos that promised he knew what it takes to be a leader and to be beloved by his men. And his wife, Agrippina the Elder, she would baby spam you so hard. Her photos would be a curated travel blog of all the places that they'd seen while traveling on military campaign with her husband. The far reaches of the Roman Empire, Germania, Rome, Syria, Antioch, and her adorable children, Nero, Drusus, Gaius, Agrippina the Younger, Julia Drusilla, and Julia Lavilla. She would totally baby spam you. And to be fair, Germanicus would probably also baby spam you. And this actually kind of reminds me of a friend of mine in New York, her sister runs an Instagram account called We Little Nomads. And this family, they live in an Airstream with their little kids and just kind of travel everywhere and take these adorable photos. And they're really cute. I'll put a link in the show notes. We Little Nomads. I feel like Germanicus and Agrippina the Elder would basically have a We Little Nomads account. It would be like We Little Nomads at War. It'd be so adorable. Such cute little babies. Travel, death. Babies! <laughs> Travel, death, war, horror, babies. That's basically what it would be. So Germanicus distinguished himself as a military leader early on in the Batonian War, serving with Tiberius, his uncle. Tiberius was the stepson and adopted son of the Emperor Augustus, and at this point he was heir to the empire. Again, guys, it's a circle. It's a circle. Right. Don't get too wrapped around the axle about how these people are related to each other. You'll just make yourself insane. Exactly. The Batonian War was a scorched earth policy war where the Romans did everything they could to starve the rebels out. The rebels were a group of people native to Illyricum, a province in the Balkans along the Adriatic Sea. Germanicus and Tiberius wound up capturing the rebel leader, a guy named Bato, and while Tiberius handled the terms of the surrender, he sent Germanicus on a punitive expedition to make sure the neighboring tribes didn't think about rebelling again. And there were some hard feelings here between Tiberius and Germanicus. Augustus, the emperor, felt like Tiberius was taking kind of a little bit too long to stamp out the rebellion, which is why he sent Germanicus to help him wrap things up. And it's not hard to imagine Tiberius felt slighted here because Augustus had sent his hotshot, this beautiful blue-eyed prince that everybody loved, who was 22 years old, to basically handle things because he thought Tiberius couldn't hack it. And there were a lot of weird, passive-aggressive hard feelings between Tiberius and Germanicus, and this was possibly where it started. Yeah, and it continued throughout Germanicus's life. Yeah, I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. So Germanicus came home wildly successful, and Augustus gave him his own triumphal regalia in Tiberius's triumph, which was kind of taking some of the glory and attention away from Tiberius, yet another passive-aggressive way to leave Tiberius quietly stewing in the corner. 
Augustus also gave Germanicus permission to become a candidate for consul, and this was kind of a big deal because consuls had an age requirement. To run for consul, you were supposed to be at least 41 years old, and Germanicus was 22. So here's this 22-year-old guy ready to take on one of the highest political offices. Talk about an overachiever. But Germanicus had already had a history of public service, even though he was only 22 years old. We're not going to shut up about that. He was 22. We're not. Because I think back to like 22 and yeah, no public service for me at 22. I know. What were you doing at 22, Jen? I think I was working as a lifeguard and dyeing my hair using lemon juice. I think maybe I just graduated college. I think I worked in a nonprofit theater as a stage manager in children's theater. It was fun. You definitely were not, you weren't, for example, a defense attorney. I wasn't, for example, a defense attorney. So before the Batonian War, Germanicus had worked as a quaester, which is a sort of defense attorney for murder cases. No big deal. Lives in the balance, you know, not a big deal. So we're sure that there are some very young lawyers out there and we salute you for all your hard work, but we're just saying it does take a long time. So you might be bucking the average there. Germanicus was an insanely popular quaester. So popular, in fact, that other quaesters didn't want to stand trial against him for fear that the jury would automatically side with Germanicus. Cassius Dio tells us of a time when someone on trial for murder demanded that the trial be brought before Augustus because Germanicus was so beloved that a jury would automatically side with him. And, you know, Germanicus was like, hey, this is good for me. This is a chance for me to show off my oratory skills to the emperor. And it was also a chance for him to catch the emperor's attention as a candidate for heir. This was before Augustus had settled on Tiberius for his heir. And actually, Tiberius was kind of his last choice anyway. See, Augustus had an heir problem. Around 23 BC, Augustus got very sick. And when he recovered, he became very serious about ensuring that there would be someone to carry on his legacy. Augustus was famous for saying that he found a city of bricks, but left it of marble. So a lot was riding on this succession, Jenny. Augustus had taken Rome from republic to empire, and he knew that those who wanted to turn Rome back into a republic were just waiting for him to pop his sandals. Augustus was famously obsessed with appointing two generations of heirs after him, an heir and an heir after that. But the thing is, Augustus's heirs kept dying. First, Augustus chose his sister's son Marcellus, but Marcellus died the same year of an illness that swept Rome. Then, Augustus chose Marcus Agrippa, his second-in-command, bestie, military genius, son-in-law, and the only man in the empire who could hold both the legions and the emperor together. But Agrippa died about 11 years after Marcellus did in 12 BC in Campania at the age of 51. So, after the death of Agrippa, Augustus considered his young grandsons, Gaius and Lucius, and stepson Drusus and Tiberius. And there are going to be a lot of Drususes flying around in this story. This particular Drusus was Germanicus's father, and he died falling off a horse in 9 BC. Lucius fell ill during military training in Spain and died in 2 AD, and then Gaius died from a wound in a little Lycian town in 4 AD. So, getting a little desperate now, Augustus turned to his stepson, the reluctant Tiberius. Tiberius and Augustus were both stepfather and father-in-law, and I'm pretty sure, like we said, this family tree is definitely not a tree so much as some kind of a circle or a dodecahedron or some kind of a shape that eats itself. It's a spherical heavenly body. Or it's an oberos, you know, the snake that eats its tail. This family tree is a snake eating itself. That's what it is. Yeah, that's kind of perfect. Tiberius was literally Augustus's last choice. 
Their relationship was extremely strained. Agrippa, Augustus's main general and BFF, had been married to Augustus's daughter, Julia. But when Agrippa died, Augustus forced Tiberius to divorce his current wife and marry the suddenly widowed Julia. Tiberius was adopted, and Augustus needed to bring him into the family line and sort of shore up the succession. For heir purposes, he needed to make Tiberius look more like he was actually in the family line and not adopted because he was adopted. Exactly, and it just gave more legitimacy to his claim. The thing is, Tiberius and Julia hated each other. Julia cheated on Tiberius constantly, and Tiberius was still desperately in love with his former wife and carrying on an affair with her. This forced marriage drove a huge wedge between Augustus and Tiberius. The wedge was so deep that Augustus reluctantly allowed a divorce, and Tiberius retired from politics. He continued with his military career, but had no desire to be a part of the ancient Roman political machine. It sounds like a shitty machine. I, I don't blame him. I mean, we've had this conversation before where we're like, if it, why don't people just go and hide? Well, Tiberius tried to go and hide. He tried to get away from it all. We're kind of getting into why Germanicus is the Manicus and why he's the best because he literally removed his family from the horrible cesspit that was Rome. Right, but he also didn't shy away from it himself. No. So that situation continued until Augustus literally had no other option but to name Tiberius as his heir with the promise that Germanicus would stand as Tiberius's heir because Augustus was obsessed with having an heir and a spare. I mean, you kind of understand why he was. Literally, every time he names someone an heir, Jenny, they freaking die. Yeah, and also, we've talked about this before, about how, especially with new governments in the ancient world, the transitions were really a sore point. That was a weak point in the government. It was a time for people to take over. It was a time for the entire government to fall apart. If you didn't have your succession planning in order, things could go really, really south after your death. Well, yeah, we, I mean, after the death of, like, Alexander the Great or Nero in Rome, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. So finally, though, Augustus thought that he had this all settled and he could finally just kick back and chillax a little bit. And he had earned it because at this point he was well into his 70s. Despite the drama at this point in our story, things were going exceptionally well in Rome. Both Tiberius and Germanicus had just come back from a victorious campaign in Germany. Tiberius was stepping it up now that he had been added back into the line of succession. Germanicus was making a name for himself. He had the ear of the emperor. He had the love of the people. He had a beautiful life and a growing family tree and some beautiful blue eyes and a really great tan. And then, then, oh God, it was the Battle of the Teutoburg Forest. The Battle of the Teutoburg Forest is kind of a big deal, guys. The Battle of the Teutoburg Forest happened in 9 AD, about five years after Tiberius was named heir. And we have to pause for a minute here because the Battle of the Teutoburg Forest was considered by many historians to be Rome's greatest defeat and a turning point in world history. We're not going to go into too many details of the battle here because that is truly a story for another day. And we'll get there because that story has everything, Jenny. It has injury. It has murder, it has betrayal, an epic battle, human sacrifices. Oh my god, I want to tell this story. I have a question. Is there a torture pit? There's a torture pit! Okay, I just want to make sure that there's torture pits. For now, I have to give you the Cliff Notes version, but I promise that we will get into the whole story one day. So in 9 AD, the Roman general Varus, who is a very close friend of Tiberius, assumed command of the legions stationed in Germania. And Germania was in a perpetual state of revolt. The thing is, it was made up of many different tribes who very often fought amongst themselves, and it was a really, really dangerous place for Roman soldiers to be stationed. See, Germania was kind of a huge territory. It comprised the area from the Danube, the future birthplace of Jenny's historical boyfriend, Alric of the Visigoths, 
about 400 years later, guys. I love him. I know you do. I'm seeing him later. I know you will. <laughs> so the territory, as I was saying, spanned from the Danube to the Baltic Sea, an area that covered the Netherlands, Belgium, Switzerland, chunks of Germany, and eastern France. And as you can imagine, these lands were made up of many different people who had little in common except that they had now fallen under Roman rulership. And to be honest, they were not thrilled with this new leadership. So when Varus took over command of Germania, he had only three legions with him to help hold the front, which seems kind of dumb. He also had an important ally on his side, though, Arminius, a man who was born among the Cherusci tribe in Germania, but who now served in a high-ranking position within the Roman army itself. Arminius had grown up in Rome after his father had sent him to the capital as tribute. Arminius had spent most of his youth in Rome as a hostage. And I like to think of Arminius as kind of like the Theon Greyjoy of our story if we're sticking with the Game of Thrones metaphor. He was raised in a hostile environment where he was forced to adopt the culture of his captors, but he was good at being a loyal Roman, so good he could pass for one of them. He joined the Roman army and rose to the ranks, becoming a trusted advisor to Varus himself. So while Varus was on his way from his summer headquarters to his winter ones along the Rhine, he got news of an uprising that required urgent attention. Arminius told Varus that he could lead him on a much better, faster route to deal with the uprising, a route that would take them off their familiar and safe course, but would get Varus to the rebellion faster. With this shortcut, Varus could wipe out the insurgents and make it to the winter quarters more or less on time. They had to get to their winter quarters before winter Jenny because the territory was difficult and if they were stuck outside their fortified winter quarters, when winter hit, they'd freeze or die. So this was a really high stakes shortcut, huh? It really was. And it was kind of something that maybe Varys shouldn't have done. But there's no talking sense into Varys when he gets an idea in his head. I mean, you know what they say about shortcuts. What do they say about shortcuts? That sometimes they're long cuts. Oh, I've never heard that before. I feel like don't try a new shortcut when the stakes are high because you really don't know what's going to happen and you might get lost. I mean, I guess if you have GPS, you won't really get lost. I don't know. GPS sometimes makes you drive into a lake. I'm just saying. I don't think that Varys had GPS. Did he have a war elephant? He didn't have a war elephant. He didn't have war elephants. He didn't have GPS. I don't know what he's doing out there. If he had a mortal Ajax, none of this would have happened. I mean, I think if he had, like, a few more legions, maybe none of this would have happened, but who am I to make those judgments? I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure numbers were on his side, Jenny. Well, the thing is that I think the Romans actually had a lot more numbers on their side than the Germans did, and the Romans still got their asses kicked. Yeah, they did. And let's find out why. Varus didn't question Arminius's advice. So according to the ancient sources, another Germanic nobleman warned Varus that Arminius was playing him false. But Varus ignored this warning. We're not sure why, if the Varus-Arminius bromance was just that all-encompassing, or if there was something else at play here. I think in Varus's mind, he and Arminius were just sort of skipping through a field of daisies holding hands together and just being total bro friends, but... Oh, bro down. I know, it's a total non-toxic masculinity friendship, but that is actually not the case because this bromance was completely one-sided. Here's the thing. There was no rebellion. The entire story was a ploy to lead Varus and his men out of their safe fortress and straight into a trap. No, no! Shocked, I say. Arminius had been loyal to his homeland all along, and he'd been playing the long game, passing for a Roman convert and earning his enemy's trust. And now all of that patience and pretending was going to pay off. Arminius led the Romans into an ambush. What? The Germans attacked while the Romans were spread out, marching on a narrow path through a forest and bog, basically defenseless. The 
United Germanic tribes were able to crush the much larger Roman force. And it's estimated that between 15 and 20,000 Romans were killed over a three-day span. That is just, those numbers are so big. I find it really hard to like comprehend them. Merv was like, what, 2.4 million people in four hours? So it's been worse. It has been worse. How to Survive a Siege Part 2. Listen and weep. So Varys and many of his officers wound up committing suicide on the battlefield, either from shame or fear of being captured and tortured. And the thing is, Varys had reason to fear. He had a reputation for treating Germanic tribes brutally and crucifying people on a whim. And now... The Germans finally got their chance for payback. The Romans, who did survive, were taken as hostages, tortured in torture pits or sacrificed. I was wondering when the torture pits were going to come into it. Oh, they're here. They're here. Okay, torture pits are here. We can all sit down now. And in addition to all of this horror, three legionary eagles, symbols of the Roman Empire and its military might, were captured by the Germanic tribes. Losing the eagles was a particularly big deal. The Roman legions were maniacally attached to their eagles. These were big metal statues of birds held on a long pole with a legion banner. Not birds, Jenny. Eagles. Okay, well, there were big metal statues of eagles held on a long pole with a legion banner. Each legion had one, and they loved their eagles. These guys cuddled up to their eagles in the tents every night and made sweet, sweet love to their eagles. They did not make love to their eagles. I'm sorry. I have to stop you right here. There are historians everywhere who are going to be very angry with that. They did not make love to them. They, like, worshipped them. They were really important. Are you saying that they had, like, a, a worship from afar kind of relationship with their eagles they might have spooned them but they did not do anything else they totally would have gotten drunk and snogged those eagles well snogging is not having sex we've been over your slang these dudes were not allowed to have families they're not allowed to have wives they're not these are all true things that she's saying we didn't actually get into like what it's like for soldiers And the eagles are awfully shiny. Why would you have sex with a gold eagle? Where would you even put the... No, no, we're moving on, moving on. We're gonna move on. Anyway, Roman standard bearers called aquilifers or eagle bearers who were definitely not in any kind of romantic relationship with those eagles. Jenny Williamson! They were not. They were platonic. They were protected at all costs. So I kind of feel like you want to be the Aquilifer because everyone's going to try to protect you on the battlefield, right? Well, you kind of do because it's someone that has to be protected. But the thing is, you're carrying a super heavy, giant, long staff with an eagle at the top and a banner of like red crimson coming down. You don't have a sword. You're not really in a position to defend yourself. Oh, you don't have a sword. See, that makes it totally different. I mean, you might have a sword, but how would you wield it holding this giant staff with a gold eagle on it? Is it like a two-handed situation? You have to hold it with two hands? I mean, I didn't go this deep into military history. Sorry, guys. But it looked really heavy, so I would need two hands. Okay, so if you need two hands, then they would probably need two hands. Probably. Right, because we are badasses. I mean, (laughs) sure. (laughs) I don't totally don't have teensy little stick arms. I'm just going to emphasize that right now. I mean, I have giant swimmer's arms, so. Well, then, you you know, if you need two, two arms, then. 
Anyway, so <laughs> so it was basically like it was an eagle on a pole and then there would be a banner that had your legionary symbol on it or the name of your legion on it, right? Yeah, I have a really cool t-shirt and it says like the Legi Minerva, which is the Legion of Minerva. And that's pretty much what the banner said. They said who your legion was and who it was loyal to. Sometimes it was dedicated to gods and sometimes it was dedicated to other things. Eventually when Augustus does pop his sandals, he becomes a deified god. So people had him on their on their legionary banner, is that what you're saying? I think they probably would have. Uh-huh. So the eagles were not just the symbol of the Roman Empire, they were also strategically important. In the chaos of battle, the soldiers could look across a battlefield and use these legionary eagles as a rallying point or help them figure out which direction to charge in or just sort of see them glowing over there above the heads of the enemy, beautiful and glowing and utterly untouchable and so, so sexually charged. My God, she did it again, guys. Losing losing an eagle was pretty much like cutting out the heart of the legion. Plus, it removed their ability to communicate. So once an eagle was lost, the legion was disbanded and totally shamed. Shame! Shame! The only way to redeem yourself and your legion was to recover your eagle. When the battle ended, Teutoburg Forest was littered with Roman dead, with skulls nailed to tree trunks, torture pits, human sacrifices. This forest must have been a complete horror scene, like the scariest forest ever. And not one, but three maniacally important and very sexy eagles were missing. So, while the... While the scenes of the carnage of the Tudorberg Forest are awful, I think it's really important to remember that Varys was known for his harsh treatment of his enemies, including mass crucifixions. What must the Germanic tribes have made of those punitive crucifixions? Did they see them as some dark sacrifice to the Roman gods, nailing people to bits of trees? It all sounds very familiar. So while the horror of Tudorberg is awful. In reality, what would have happened to the rebelling tribes if the Romans had won would have also been awful. This is the ancient world, guys, and there really weren't any good guys. Not that we're saying what either side did would be okay by any standards. So this defeat literally changed the course of Roman history. According to Florus in the epitome of Roman history, the result of this disaster was that the empire, which had not stopped on the shores of the ocean, was checked on the banks of the Rhine. According to Suetonius, the normally very stoic Augustus had an extreme reaction, butting his head on the walls of his palace and lamenting, Quintilius Verus, give me back my legions. Give me back my legions! Augustus had a total meltdown, and also Rome wept for this. We're talking about 20,000 men dying over a three-day period. All of these people had families. They had friends. The city of Rome lost a generation of fighting men in some far-flung battle that should have been a cakewalk, an easy detour to crush a small rebellion on the way to winter camp. And it was Rome's first big defeat in generations. Before this, the Golden Empire had seemed incapable of such a defeat. But now, the empire was mortal. It's like you used to be in a fantasy story that was kind of like Tolkien where all the good guys do fine and then all of a sudden you're in grimdark. Yeah, and it's why that quote about being checked on the banks in the Rhine, when I read that in the research, I was so like, I was so moved because they really felt immortal and Augustus was a very clever guy and he knew that eventually the Roman Empire would be checked, but I don't think he expected it to come when it did. Yeah, and that wasn't the worst of it. The reports from survivors of torture and human sacrifice were devastating to families back home. If your family wasn't directly impacted, then your neighbors were. And if your loved one was killed in the forest, then you were left wondering whether they died in a torture pit. This wound on the Roman psyche was there to stay. 
And then Germanicus came along to wreak some sweet, sweet vengeance on Germania because Germanicus was the Manicus. He was the Manicus. Yup. In 13 AD, four years after the Battle of Teutoburg, Germanicus returned to Germania. He was there to kick ass, take names, get revenge, track down Arminius, get back eagles, and chew gum. And you know what, Jenny? He was all out of gum. I bet he was. But before he could get to his checklist, Germanicus had to deal with a major problem. Augustus died. Tiberius had been chosen as heir, and that made Germanicus next in line. Now, if you're of a devious frame of mind, like I am, and you're Germanicus, you might have thoughts in your head of hurrying Tiberius off that throne so you could get onto it that little bit faster. But Germanicus... Manicus was too good for this world. He was ever the model soldier. He supported the new emperor. Maybe because he had six children and a wife to think about. Or maybe he was happy to wait his turn to be emperor. But Germanicus's legions were not a fan of this new emperor. They revolted over non-payment of wages, which Germanicus being the Manicus offered to pay out of his own pocket. And also, they just didn't like Tiberius's face. Or his friends. See, Tiberius had been BFFs with Varus, the guy who had gotten 20,000 of their friends killed, in Germania, the very land they were currently stationed in. The legions wanted Tiberius out and Germanicus in. So the legions said, hey, we know what's a good idea. How about you be emperor? And Germanicus said, hey, I know what's an idea that's going to get me killed. You guys saying I should be emperor. So how about you stop? Germanicus knew that letting his legions crown him emperor was a dangerous game. He did not want to answer the call. But the legions often don't take kindly to people saying no to them. And remember, Germanicus had his whole family with him. So he had to get both himself and his family out of this situation in one piece while keeping his legions' loyalty. When getting back their money and saying no politely didn't appease the legions, Agrippina, our Catelyn Stark, brings out adorable two-year-old baby Gaius. Oh, Jenny, he was so cute. Agrippina had dressed him in this perfect replica baby soldier outfit for the Instagram Jenny, right down to these adorable little shoes. So cute! I know! And the legions were totally won over. They didn't want this family to go away. They all collectively went, aww. And they even gave this adorable little baby boy a cute nickname, Bootykins. Little baby Bootykins! In Latin, that name is Caligula. So this isn't the first time that Agrippina thought quick to save her husband's hide. Around two years earlier in 15 AD, when Germanicus was away kicking some butt and taking some names. And chewing gum? He, he was all out of gum. Oh. Well, I, that's what I heard. If only we'd given him gum. The ancient sources say he was all out of gum. <laughs> so he was out kicking some German ass. And his lieutenant, Casina who I'm probably mispronouncing terribly, was left holding the Rhine. A large contingent of Roman soldiers had been out across the river fighting, and they were expected to come over the bridge and back into camp any second. But then came a really terrifying rumor. The main Germanic armies were actually headed that way too, and they were planning to cross that bridge and annihilate the Roman camp. And there was only one bridge across the Rhine. Some in the camp wanted to destroy it so that they would not get their own butts kicked. But that would leave no escape route for the retreating Roman troops who were still out there. 
Agrippina, like the badass she is, wouldn't allow the bridge to be destroyed, even though both she and her kids would be annihilated if the Germans made it across first. Luckily for her, though, the Roman troops made it over before the Germans. And when the troops returned, Suetonius tells us, Agrippina went to the bridge, acting as a general, and receiving the soldiers as they crossed it. The wounded among them were presented by her with clothes, and they received from her own hands everything necessary for the cure of their wounds. While her husband was away, Agrippina was a respected voice for the troops. She was listened to. She had a say, and she protected the returning army and tended to them. Jenny, this is just so incredibly rare in Roman times. Yeah. So Agrippina the Elder was a full partner to her husband on campaign. And right now, Germanicus is on campaign in Germania. Grandpa Augustus just died. Uncle Tiberius is emperor. And Germanicus has just headed off his army's attempt to crown him emperor instead via the cuteness. Now it's time for Germanicus, the Manicus, to wreak revenge for the Battle of the Teutoburg. Germanicus led three retaliatory campaigns in Germania between 15 and 17 AD, and let's be perfectly honest here, these were missions of vengeance and slaughter. These campaigns were not designed to be fair or just to the Germanic peoples. They were designed to decimate them so badly they'd never be able to rebel against Rome again. Part of the reason the campaigns were so brutal was to cement the loyalty of the troops. Remember, Germanicus had just said no to them, and the Roman legions really didn't like that. So to make it up to them, Germanicus led his troops on one of their favorite activities, violently murdering some people. And also included on the menu of activities were rape, pillage, and plunder. This is how the soldiers made extra money. They plundered. So these punitive campaigns also enriched the legions while destroying the lives of countless Germanic tribespeople. He also held on to his troops' loyalty by stopping at the site of the Battle of Teutoburg to heal the wounds of the lost legions and bury all the dead bodies because ghosts... Because ghosts, Jenny. I mean, that forest must have been so haunted. Where were Sam and Dean Winchester when you need them? I know. Well, I think Sam and Dean Winchester would have had a hard time with this forest because it would have been filled with like 20,000 ghosts. They would need a lot of rock salt. They would need so much rock salt. They'd have to like douse the whole place in rock salt. Like where would they get that much? So at this point, it had been six years since the Battle of Teutoburg and nobody had bothered cleaning up the site because why? Because ghosts, Jen, that's why. (laughs) (laughs) Because ghosts. I wouldn't go clean up in there either. (laughs) Because it's haunted, Jenny, it's haunted. But Germanicus was not afraid of the ghosts. He was not afraid and he was going to set it to rights, Jenny. That's right. He was going to march right in there and take care of the Teutoburg Forest ghost problem. And while we're talking about, I'm going to tell you what Tacitus said awaited Germanicus and his troops when they reached that battlefield. Yeah. What did they see in the ghost forest? Here's what they saw. In the center of the field were the whitening bones of men as they had fled or stood their ground, strewn everywhere or piled in heaps. Near lay fragments of weapons and limbs of horses and also human heads, prominently nailed to trunks of trees. In the adjacent groves were the barbarous altars, on which they had immolated tribunes and first-ranked centurions. This site really disturbed Germanicus and his 80,000 legionaries. So just as an aside, Germanicus had 80,000 legionaries. That's a lot of men following him. That's enough to take on an empire. It is. You could see why people around Germanicus were really twitchy about him. And so, in order to heal these old wounds, Germanicus the Manicus went about giving the fallen soldiers the burial they deserved. Quote from Tacitus, And so, the Roman army, now on the spot, six years after the disaster, in grief and anger, began to bury the bones of the three legions. Not a soldier knowing whether he was interring the relics of a relative or a stranger, but looked on all as kinsfolk and their own blood, while their wrath rose higher than ever against the foe. 
In raising the barrow, Germanicus laid the first sod, rendering thus a most welcome honor to the dead, and sharing also in the sorrow of those present. Now that the dead were laid to rest, Germanicus's next step was to retrieve those damn sexy eagles. He went on to find two of the missing legionary eagles and restore them to the empire. This was a huge balm in the wounded soul of Rome. But the one thing Germanicus couldn't do was capture that wily Arminius. The rebel German leader kept slipping through his fingers, although Germanicus did manage to capture Arminius's wife and son. But in 16 AD, after missing him time and again, Germanicus finally pinned Arminius down on the plains near the Weiser River, near the city of Hamlin in present-day Germany. So this was Germanicus's grudge match. Tacitus calls the battle a Roman victory, and he tells us, quote, The enemy were slaughtered from the fifth hour of daylight to nightfall, and for ten miles the ground was littered with corpses and weapons. That's right, Jen. Do you want to say it? Jenny, Jenny, is it a reckoning? It's the reckoning. <laughs> What is it with the reckoning? I don't know, because my enthusiasm is contagious. You know what? I'm happy to see that you're happy. (laughs) But Arminius got away again, and this really infuriated Germanicus. It infuriated him so much that he decided to march across the Rhine without the emperor's permission to go and get the rebel leader. And this was definitely the wrong thing to do. Big mistake. Big mistake. See, back at home, Uncle Tiberius had started getting twitchy. Germanicus now had 80,000 troops who absolutely adored him and who'd come inches from making him emperor and deposing Tiberius. And even though Germanicus had turned down that honor, Tiberius could see that Germanicus's popularity was a direct threat to his rule and his life. Not to mention that Tiberius felt invading the far-flung reaches of Germania wasn't really worth the effort or the manpower that Germanicus was quickly burning through. The honor of Rome had been satisfied. Two of the eagles had been found. The Germanic revolt had been squashed. Spending more time in Germania wasn't worth the effort. There were far more profitable places where Tiberius and the empire could be spending their time. And this would become common wisdom amongst emperors. Don't bother crossing the Rhine. Not worth the effort. It wouldn't be until Marcus Aurelius, about 169 years later. He's the father of Commodus, guys. We'll get there. Also, worst sex scene writer ever. Ever. Um, so it wasn't until Marcus Aurelius that another large-scale Germanic campaign would be undertaken. Tiberius recalled Germanicus and his entire family and 80,000 of his closest friends and colleagues back to Rome for a triumph and a new job. Germanicus, the Manicus, by this point was everybody's favorite blue-eyed celebrity. People went out to meet his entourage 20 miles outside of Rome, throwing flowers. The Praetorians went to meet Germanicus en masse and offered to make him their emperor. Once again, Tiberius's rule and his life teetered in the balance. And once again, Germanicus was like, guys, Stop bringing this up. It's super awkward. Which, I mean, I find that super fascinating, Danny. Who turns down the purple twice? Well, our blue-eyed prince slash golden god, that's who. I think I'm in love with him. He's in love with his wife and he's got six adorable babies. He's really fertile, Jen. Ugh, I think I'm pregnant just thinking about it. I think you're pregnant from talking about him. I think you'd better go pee on a stick. I'm not peeing on a stick, Jenny. <laughs> you can't get ghost pregnant. I feel like Germanicus is the kind of guy where if you sit down where he was just sitting, you might actually get pregnant. All right, I'll pee on a stick later. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just, you know, preventive measures, that's all. <laughs> 
So Tiberius, at this point, had a big Germanicus-shaped problem. Germanicus's popularity was a major threat, but the legions would revolt if anything happened to him. They had Tiberius by the short and curlies, and Tiberius had to play nice. That meant at least making a pretense of showing Germanicus the glory and honor he deserved. So... Tiberius threw Germanicus a triumph, and even if he actually hadn't captured Arminius, the people still celebrated as if he had. Germanicus was a war hero, and this was the last time anyone who wasn't a sitting emperor got a triumph. Yeah, I mean, that really tells you a lot about how the emperors changed their course. They never again let a general have as much power as Germanicus had. Yeah, I guess they didn't ever really throw a thank you parade for anyone else for doing a good job unless that person was also a sitting emperor. Wouldn't it be great to have a thank you parade for how good we do our jobs? Yes, I would like a thank you parade. Yes, please. No confetti. Bad for the environment. We would like our thank you parade to be environmentally responsible, but we would like one. We would like a parade. I mean, you can always throw rose petals. I'm fine with that. Yeah. So Germanicus's triumph included high-profile prisoners of war, such as Arminius's wife and her three-year-old son and other defeated Germanic chiefs. Tiberius gave money out to the people in Germanicus's name, and then he granted Germanicus the eastern part of the empire to rule. And this was a privilege that Augustus had granted to both Agrippa and Tiberius in the process of making them heirs. If you look at it from one direction, it was looking like Tiberius was actually grooming Germanicus to succeed him. But looks can be deceiving. Germanicus's new job was all the way over in Syria. Giving Germanicus command of the Eastern Empire was a really smart way to remove a troubling political rival, sending him far away where people could kind of forget about him and then quietly getting rid of him. If you look at it from a different angle, it basically amounted to political exile. And if you think, nah, Tiberius would never do that, remember one of your ancient history fangirl rules to live by. Never mess with Tiberius. Germanicus and his family made their way east to Syria. Along the way, they had an epic ancient world road trip, Jenny. Because Germanicus was the Manicus! Sorry, guys. (laughs) It's what we do. It's what we do best. And if our man Germanicus was going all the way to Syria for his new job, then he was going to see all the stops along the way. And he was going to share those stops with his wife and children. I just think that their family relationship is so beautiful. So again, I'm going to remind you how fertile he was. At this point in time, Germanicus and Agrippina had five surviving children. Nero, Drusus, Gaius, Agrippina the Younger, and Julia Drusilla. Poor Agrippina was very, very pregnant. Again. Germanicus stopped in Greece and saw the restored Temple of Spades. He took part in an Olympic chariot race and won just on his way to take up his new job. Just, you know, a pit stop on his commute to work. Swoon. Hmm, such swoons. So swoon. Much swoon. Very swoon. I have to open a window now. I bet you do. I do. It's getting it's getting humid in here. It's Ugh. very humid in here. I wouldn't be so hot in here if we weren't doing the episode on Germanicus. Whew! I just kind of think like Germanicus's kids must have been so thrilled to see their dad win. I mean, if you're one of Germanicus's kids at this moment, your dad has got to be this larger than life figure who could do anything. And you followed him on campaign. You've witnessed the legions and the Praetorian Guard try to crown him emperor. Twice twice. You've seen him win all these victories, steal back the eagles, and return to Rome in triumph. There's nothing your dad can't do. And your mom is just as impressive. I mean, the legions looked up to her too. Germanicus and his family went traveling along a route that was basically a grand tour of all the battle sites where their families had seen major victories, including the Battle of Actium, where they definitely visited the gift shop. Oh my god, they totally did. I bet they bought one of those, like, number one foam fingers. Yeah, they got a foam finger, they got some of the homemade jam, 
jam. They got like a mug. Do you think they got like a commemorative amphora? They probably did get a commemorative amphora. (laughs) (laughs) They probably lugged that thing all the way to Syria. (laughs) Oh my God. Do you think it just said like, I was here, Battle of Actium? It said, I went to the Battle of Actium and all I got was this stupid amphora. That's what it said. (laughs) Was this stupid commemorative amphora. (laughs) That's right. The family visited the island of Lesbos, where his youngest and final child, Julia Lavilla, was born. So they just, you know, pit stopped to birth a baby. There's this interesting thing about um, these pit stops where the children were born. In the research, they were saying that like where Agrippina stopped to have these children, there would be these temples where they'd have these quotes about Agrippina's fertility. Lesbos is one of those places. She was really fertile and Germanicus was really fertile. And these two were just a giant mutual baby factory. They made a detour to visit Troy, which for the record is also on our bucket list. Oh yeah. Hector! (laughs) You and your Hector. (laughs) Hector, breaker of horses. And then Germanicus says to his wife, hey, babe, let's get our future told by the Oracle of Apollo Kleros. And one interesting thing that we learned about Germanicus in the research is that he was exceptionally superstitious, even for people of his time, and really believed in oracles, portents, and magic. And he probably believed that stopping at the Oracle would tell him everything he needed to know to ensure a safe trip for his family and a smooth start to his new job. So Germanicus's grand tour of the ancient world also managed to annoy the hell out of Tiberius. Tiberius had basically just sent Germanicus to go inconspicuously disappear in Syria, and Germanicus was going there in the most conspicuous way possible. Here was this young, handsome, upstart guy traveling through the ancient world, winning Olympic medals, having the perfect family, and associating his name with the biggest and best sites in the ancient world. I mean, Jenny, just think of the Instagram. Think of him checking into all these places. That Instagram account would have had a zillion followers. Everyone would be so obsessed. I know, they would not be following crusty old Tiberius. Another thing Germanicus decided to do on the way to his new job was make a little side trip to Egypt to help sort out the famine in the country. Much of Rome's grain was grown in Egypt, and a famine would be devastating for the people back in Rome. So this was just a pit stop to save the world, you know, do a little humanitarian tourism, all on the way to Germanicus's new job. But this was also a total overstep and really pissed Tiberius off even further. See, Egypt was technically an imperial province, and no one of Germanicus's rank was allowed to enter it without Tiberius permission. This was a weird, quibbly little rule that had been passed down from Augustus, and it was meant to shore up the emperor's power against other powerful rivals. Germanicus entering Egypt for any reason was a direct challenge to Tiberius's power. I feel like Germanicus just kind of periodically didn't consider the political ramifications of things and just plowed right through. Yeah, and I wonder if that's just from his like experience being a general and being like, well, I just gotta get this job done. Right, just being a military person and being used to taking charge and used to just kind of forging ahead and not used to having any checks on his power, you know? Yeah. So by the time Germanicus arrived at his new job in Syria, Tiberius was absolutely in a seething rage. But Tiberius was not Germanicus's most immediate problem. You see, Germanicus was supposed to govern the Eastern Empire alongside a seasoned administrator who had been in the area a long time and knew it inside and out. Gnaeus Calpurnius Piso was the legate and governor of Syria. On paper, the two were supposed to share power, but Germanicus outranked Piso and clearly expected to have the last 
say. Piso was not a fan of this blue-eyed golden boy, Germanicus, with his superhero status, stunning good looks, swoon, and the perfect family telling Piso how to do his own job. And so Piso and Germanicus set about undermining each other. Germanicus would put people in charge who were loyal to him as a way to shore up his power and insult Piso. Piso would change out different soldiers in an attempt to weaken Germanicus's control over the legions. And on and on it went. I feel like this is just so passive aggressive. It's just a whole bunch of you moved my stapler. They're just two outdoor cats who were used to having all the power and they totally hated sharing. Yeah. So this feuding might have gone on indefinitely, except Germanicus became suddenly ill quite soon after he started his new job. Immediately, people suspected he'd been poisoned. Now, I'm absolutely going with the poison theory, but it's important to note that this was the ancient world, and sometimes healthy people did die of wounds, infections, fevers, the clap, the evil eye, and any number of other things. It happened. There were absolutely no antibiotics. It is possible that Germanicus maybe died of West Nile or malaria, but it isn't likely. The ancient sources all suggest poison here. At least more of them suggest poison than not. So we're going to talk poison on this podcast. Oh, can we talk poison? I love poison. I love talking poison. I'm warning you. I'm not letting her fix my drink. It's totally bottled water all the way. I broke that seal. She has a taster come with her. Halitosis. She insists on calling her taster halitosis. I'm embarrassed for the guy. He's a very nice guy. Just, you know, he needs a breath mint. Poisoning inconvenient people was a big part of the culture in Rome. We just had an entire episode about this, uh, Locusta the Poisoner. So if you want to go back and listen in depth to how poisoning worked in the ancient world, you should totally check it out. Locusta the Poisoner, Assassin to Emperors. We're both still totally obsessed with poisoners and Jen is extremely paranoid now. Totally paranoid. I'm almost like a Roman emperor. (laughs) I mean, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So here we are. Suddenly, the hardy inhaled Germanicus was struck down with a mysterious illness. It looked like poison, but some people took it one step further. There were suspicions that someone had cursed Germanicus or was working some sort of dark magic on him. And this could have been psychosomatic, something that Germanicus believed himself. Remember, Germanicus was very superstitious. So just the thought of black magic might have been enough to make him even sicker. And I guess there was reason to suspect this, if you believe in black magic. When workmen were searching through Germanicus's quarters, they found human and animal remains in the walls, as well as scrolls with Germanicus's name on it, i.e. spells and bloody ashes. So, I mean, that was enough to stoke suspicions of witchcraft, don't you think? Or just really bad housekeeping. I mean, animal remains in the walls. Like, I don't know. I think my apartment's gotten that gross once or twice. Well, I mean, if you've ever had mice in a city and you've, like, put stuff they die in the walls yeah so there's like totally prosaic reasons why there might be dead animals in the walls it's totally not witchcraft okay (laughs) or is it i don't know i guess it depends on the angle you're looking at it from so needless to say this whole conversation has just turned very dark tacitus tells us that as germanicus was dying quote turning to his wife germanicus begged her by her memories of himself and by their children to forget her pride submit to cruel fortune and back in Rome to avoid provoking those stronger than herself by competing for their power. That was his public utterance. Privately, he said more, warning her of danger, so it was said, from Tiberius. 
So in public, Germanicus was urging his wife to make the peace, while in private, he was convinced that Piso and his wife Plancina had been poisoning him, working under the orders of Tiberius himself. Germanicus was winding his wife up in private, while in public, he was telling her to calm down, make peace, play nice, and this might sound kind of perverse, but he had to warn her because he knew that her life and the lives of his six children hung in the balance. On the 10th of October, 1980, Germanicus, the Manicus, died. Oh no! Our golden god! Our blue-eyed prince! Our beautiful blue-eyed prince was 33 years old. The Romans compared him to Alexander the Great because of his military prowess, striking good looks, and early death. The sudden early death of Germanicus meant that everything this loving family knew was about to change. And not for the better. This is your Ned Stark at the end of season one of Game of Thrones, people. Everything was about to get a lot worse. Suetonius in his Life of Caligula tells us, On the day when Germanicus passed away, the temples were stoned and the altars of the gods thrown down, while some flung their household gods into the street and cast out their newly born children. That is a really extreme reaction. But the Manicus, Jenny, the Manicus! Our blue-eyed prince! Our golden god! We're not done with the reaction. <laughs> when it was at last made known that he was no more, the public grief could be checked neither by any consolation nor edict, and it continued even during the festival days of the month of December. The fame of the deceased and regret for his loss were increased by the horror of the times which followed, since all believed, and with good reason, that the cruelty of Tiberius, which soon burst forth, had been held in check through his respect and awe for Germanicus. A funeral was held for Germanicus in Syria. Agrippina, who believed by now that her husband had been poisoned, had his body stripped naked and put on display so that the crowds could see the strange blue marks on his skin that she felt were evidence of poisoning. The ancient Romans actually believed that certain colorations on a corpse were proof of poisoning. After the funeral, the body was cremated, and Agrippina and her six grieving children, Nero, Drusus, Gaius, Agrippina the Younger, Julia Drusilla, and Julia Lavilla, got on a boat to Rome. On her way back, Tacita tells us, quote, Agrippina the Elder herself, worn out with grief and physically ill, yet intolerant of every obstacle to revenge, went on board the fleet with her children and the ashes of Germanicus amid universal pity, now carrying in her bosom the relics of the dead, uncertain of her vengeance, apprehensive for herself, cursed in that fruitfulness which had borne but hostages to fortune. But before Agrippina even got back to Rome, Tiberius went into damage control mode. See, he was in serious danger now. A large chunk of his own army had vastly preferred Germanicus to him, and things could get real stabby real quick for Tiberius if his army believed he had any role in Germanicus's death by poisoning, which some of the rumors were already claiming. So Tiberius's plan was to put the blame on Germanicus's other very public enemy, Piso and his wife Plancina. Piso, however, was not going to take this lying down. He leaped on his own boat and raced to Rome, racing to beat Agrippina so he could speak to Tiberius first. There's a great moment I found in the research where the boats were actually coming up alongside each other with the two parties hurling insults at each other across the waves. It's kind of funny and like hard to picture, but it's just like I picture these two people on these boats like screaming at each other as their boats surge forward. That's kind of how the ancient sources made it sound. And I was like kind of giggling as I was researching it. The thing is, Tiberius had no intention of blaming anyone other than Piso. He went to work planning to welcome Piso home by putting him and Blancina 
on trial for the murder of Germanicus. Piso saw the writing on the wall and committed suicide before he even got to Rome. He checked out early. Oh, yeah. Jenny, his wife, Planzina, begged for the help of her friend in high places, the Empress Livia, Tiberius's mother, and Augustus's widow. The Empress Livia begged Tiberius for mercy for Plancina, and incredibly, he granted it, pissing off Agrippina, who thought Plancina had a hand in Germanicus's death. In the 20s AD, it really, really sucked to be a child of Germanicus. Yeah, you could say that again. See, Agrippina the Elder was now a widow, and without her husband's protection, she now had to live in the household of her closest relative, and who is her closest relative, Jen? Tiberius, the man she believed had murdered her husband. Super awkward. So she and her six kids were completely under Tiberius's control. Tiberius had the power of life and death over all of them. He'd decide how the boys' military and political careers would unfold and who the girls would marry. And he had control over Agrippina's fate as well, including whether and who she'd remarry. That was dangerous for the whole family because Agrippina the Elder and all of her kids were rallying points for anyone who was dissatisfied with Tiberius's rule. They were a direct threat to him, not just to his rule, but to his life. Despite all this, Agrippina would just not shut up about the fact that she believed Tiberius had killed her husband. So I kind of feel like Agrippina was one of those people with a completely one-track mind who you just cannot make small talk with. Oh yeah, she's totally the sort of person, Jenny, who you'd like see her wearing an awesome purse and you'd be like, yo, Agrippina, where'd you get that purse from? And it's all like, Tiberius killed my husband! And you'd be like, hey, I saw on your Insta that you're making your own organic baby food. How's that going? Tiberius killed my husband and now he's dead! Oh, okay. Well, I guess I I, I don't have any more questions, okay? He's dead and Tiberius is the one at fault. Okay, I'm I'm not going to badmouth the emperor because, you know, I like living. Agrippina did not have any such compunctions. She loved her family and she would do anything to protect them and to avenge the death of her husband. But, I mean, she was not making some good life choices right now. Agrippina's constant accusations about Tiberius killing her husband put her family in direct danger. And the ancient sources tell us that Agrippina was manly, greedy for power, and filled with, quote, masculine ambition because the ancient sources were sexist. Surprise, surprise. Right. But I think that it's really unfair to Agrippina to say that because she was a widow who was completely under the control of a man she was convinced had murdered her husband. And that is a really unfair system. Yeah. So Agrippina set out to make Tiberius miserable. One of the things she did, apart from going on and on to anyone who would listen about how Tiberius had murdered her husband, was demand that her two oldest sons, Nero and Drusus, be made heirs to the throne. But the thing is, Tiberius already had an heir, his own son, also named Drusus. Yet another Drusus. You know what? I just took a look at this family tree and said, you know what we need more of? Drusus. And could we have some more Neros? Yeah, we also need more Nero, but really what we need is some Drusus. All the Drusus, all the time. We've got a name bucket, and the only two names in the bucket are Nero and Drusus. <laughs> Tiberius already had an heir, his own son, named Drusus. And Tiberius had his own dynasty to keep alive. But the thing is, Agrippina kept explaining to anyone who would listen that her children were actual blood relatives of Augustus. And that is true. They were royalty. Tiberius was Augustus's adopted son. And having Tiberius's son on the throne would be like having another Tiberius on the throne. And Tiberius was not popular. He was as popular as the clap. And Agrippina would say, why have Tiberius when you could have an Augustus on the throne or a Germanicus? I mean, that is totally sound logic to me, right, Jenny? Agrippina was saying that her kids had more of a right to the throne than Tiberius's son because her kids were related to Augustus and Tiberius's kid wasn't, which, you know, makes some sense. 
I think she was also trying to insinuate that, like, my kids would be more like Augustus, who everyone loves, and less like Tiberius. Like, his kids would be like him. You know, it'd be like getting Germanicus come again down to Earth. But Germanicus the Manicus only comes once in a lifetime. That's right. Only once in any lifetime. We only get one golden god, blue-eyed prince. (laughs) So another thing Agrippina demanded was the right to remarry. While Agrippina still deeply loved her husband, she had six kids to raise. And Tiberius wasn't exactly the greatest choice for a guardian. She wanted out of his household for her and her kids. And in the ancient world, her only option for escape was to marry into someone else's household. But this request was also a slap in the face of Tiberius. Tiberius was meant to be the protector of Agrippina and her children. And Agrippina's very public requests to remarry were like public declarations that she thought he was failing at his job. And that wouldn't stand. So Tiberius forbid Agrippina to remarry. Needless to say, family dinners were a tad chilly. Tensions worsened so much that Agrippina refused to eat the food at Tiberius's dinner parties, which probably was not a dumb thing to do, to be honest. Yeah, if you listen to our Poisoner episode, you'd probably agree that that wasn't a dumb thing to do. There's this famous incident where Tiberius offered her mushrooms and she wouldn't eat them. And then Tiberius ate one of the mushrooms and explained that this had been a test of her loyalty to him. And she'd failed. Talk about living in a shark tank. I mean, talk about manipulation. Mm-hmm. Speaking of manipulation, there's another player in this story, Tiberius's Praetorian prefect, Sejanus. See, Sejanus also wanted to be emperor. He wanted Tiberius to make him his heir. And he'd been maneuvering for this for a long time. And Agrippina showing up and insisting that Tiberius make her sons his heirs through a wrench in Sejanus's carefully laid plans. Agrippina had just made another very dangerous enemy. And while Agrippina was running around Rome telling everyone who'd listen about Tiberius murdering her husband. God, she would not shut up about it. Agrippina, I just want to have a normal conversation with you for five minutes. Just please. Please tell me where you got the cute shoes from. I just want to catch up, see how the kids are doing, you know, see where you're getting your hair done these days. Nope. Nope. We got it back on the husband. Fine. You know what? I just smile and nod, Jen. You have to. That's the only way to get through a conversation with Agrippina the Elder. Smile and nod. Okay, I'm bringing us back to our story. So while Agrippina kept telling everyone who would listen that Tiberius killed her husband, Sejanus was busy seducing people, specifically Lavilla, the wife of Tiberius's son and actual heir, Drusus. Yet another... Drusus. Sorry, guys. Sejanus convinced Lavilla to poison her husband so Sejanus could remarry her and step in as an heir for Tiberius. But when yet another Drusus finally died of that poison, Tiberius rejected Sejanus's suit to marry Lavilla. Tiberius was worried this marriage would further outrage Agrippina, and he just couldn't with Agrippina right now. I mean, who could with Agrippina at this point in the story? But the reality was that Tiberius couldn't risk taking Sejanus into his family and allowing another line of succession to be created. If Sejanus and Lavilla had children, this would create yet another strand of the family to fight over the throne of Rome. Tiberius was not opening that can of worms. So Tiberius's son Drusus died of what looked like a wasting disease, but was actually poison. And Tiberius did not take this well. He started spending less and less time in Rome and more and more time in his country estate in Capri. And he was genuinely grieved. This was a child he'd had with a wife he'd loved. So eventually, he just kind of couldn't with government and he pieced out to Capri full-time, leaving Sejanus as de facto head of state, but not before making Agrippina's oldest two sons, Nero and Drusus, his heirs. And that put giant targets on both these kids' backs. With Tiberius gone, Sejanus and Agrippina the Elder went to war. 
I mean, we're talking full on war, Jenny. The wigs came off. The earrings are off. You see, the thing is, Agrippina was like the one person Sejanus could not seduce. Agrippina was the one person Sejanus could not convince with his dick. Yeah, because Agrippina had been married to Germanicus and he was a golden god blue-eyed prince. Yeah, once you go Germanicus, you don't go back, Jen. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so Sejanus began arresting Agrippina's friends and charging them with treason and sexual misconduct and seeing them imprisoned and executed. These trials chipped away at Agrippina's supporters and left her and her family without the support they needed to withstand the sustained political attacks from Sejanus and by proxy Tiberius. In 27 AD, eight years after Germanicus's death, Agrippina found herself under house arrest, confined to the family villa outside Herculaneum, and then the hammer fell. She was charged with treason, sexual misconduct, and corruption. And then, while Agrippina was under house arrest in Herculaneum, the worst of all possible things happened in Rome. Livia, Augustus's widow, died. See, Livia was an important ally of Agrippina's. Tiberius hated her for her part in forcing him to divorce his first wife and marry Augustus's daughter, Julia. And even Agrippina wasn't a giant fan of Livia. No, I mean, they kind of hated each other, too. Yeah, because Livia had interceded to spare the life of Plancina, Pisa's widow, and Agrippina was not a fan of that. But even so, Livia had used her power and influence to keep Agrippina and her kids safe in Tiberius's house. But Livia was 87 years old, and now, maybe when the dynasty needed her the most, she was out of time. In 29 AD, when she finally died, the shit really hit the fan. Tiberius abjectly refused to return to Rome for his mom's funeral, a huge insult to the memory of the woman who'd raised him. He gave the job of sorting out the funeral and making the appropriate speeches to the young Caligula. And this task was kind of a poison chalice. Caligula was damned if he did a good job and honored his grandmother, who the emperor hated, and damned if he didn't because Livia was popular with the people. And to complicate things even more, Tiberius forbade the Senate to deify Livia as they'd done for Augustus, claiming that it went against her wishes. It totally wasn't against her wishes. Yeah, but Tiberius told everyone that it was. I know. Don't mess with Tiberius. That is ancient history fangirl rule 101. So the people did not look kindly on Tiberius's choice not to return to Rome for Livia's funeral. But he was the emperor, and if he wanted to sit out this funeral, they could take their objections all the way to his right-hand man, Sejanus. Now that Livia was gone, there was no one to stop Sejanus and Tiberius from getting rid of the family of Germanicus. First came a letter from Tiberius on his island paradise of Capri. It denounced Agrippina and her eldest son Nero to the Senate. He didn't charge them with outright rebellion for fear that this would incite public riots, but instead insinuated a lot of immorality that bordered on treason, sexual misconduct of an unspecified nature. I mean, this came up a lot in the research, and it kind of felt like everyone was guilty of this. Were eagles involved? Anyway, um, so I wonder if this had to do with some of Augustus's laws of morality. Augustus had drafted some incredibly draconian old school morality laws, and it's possible that Tiberius used these laws to build a case against Agrippina and her children while he was living on the ancient world Neverland Ranch. And just think about the irony there. We're going to go into the irony of that in the next episode, but um, suffice it to say that Tiberius really did not have a leg to stand on. So anyway, the Senate actually didn't believe the letter that Tiberius sent the first time, they said that the instructions from Tiberius and what to do about 
Agrippina's quote unquote rebellion or whatever weren't clear enough and that they wouldn't do anything about it until they had a more explanatory letter from him. So Tiberius had to send a second letter before the Senate would actually agree to exile both Agrippina the Elder and her oldest son, Nero, and his writing hand at this point was getting super cramped. Super cramped. So while the Senate didn't find Agrippina and Nero guilty of rebellion, which is what Tiberius wanted, they agreed to label them both public enemies. In 29 AD, Agrippina was exiled to Panditeria, which was, ironically, the same barren island her mother Julia, Tiberius's hated ex-wife, had been exiled to by her dad, the, the Emperor Augustus, a generation earlier. Nero was exiled to Pontia. And we got to pause for a minute to discuss what exile really meant in the ancient world. Before this podcast, I'd always thought of exile as like really not a bad way to go. I mean, you had to leave your family and your friends, but at least you got to stay alive, you know? You got to wander around the world in an imposed sort of forever vacation. Yeah, I always thought it sounded kind of glamorous. You know, you're in exile. You have a tragic backstory. It couldn't be that bad. You see, I thought that, but all of that changed once I started the research for this podcast, Jenny, because exile took on many different forms in the ancient world. But one of those forms was basically a quieter, slower execution. It was a way for the emperor to disappear high-ranking or beloved people, people he can't just execute. Exile gets these people out of the public eye just long enough so that they can be forgotten and then be quietly killed. Sometimes, if the person was lucky, an executioner would be sent to dispatch them. But often, what would happen is that the unlucky exile would be left to starve to death, slowly, away from prying eyes. Yeah, so Nero, let's talk about Nero for a second. So when we talk about Nero, there's a Nero that everybody knows, the one who watched Rome burn playing a fiddle, which I don't... He did not play a fiddle. He played a liar. Right, I don't think this is actually true, but it's the legend that everybody knows about Nero. This is not that Nero. So not that Nero was the oldest son of Germanicus, and he had been married off at Tiberius's orders to Julia, the daughter of Tiberius's son. So this is Tiberius's granddaughter. This marriage, ensured that both lines of succession pretty much stayed in the family. And for what I've seen in the research, Nero wasn't really doing anything wrong. He did basically everything asked of him. He was just too liked by the people and too close to the throne. He had to die. So about a year into not that Nero's exile in Pontia, some executioners were sent to quietly kind of just take care of him. He took his own life, possibly forced to. He may have been offered the choice of doing it himself or having someone else do it for him. And he was 24 years old. Agrippina the Elder was in exile for three years. And we like kind of can't get over the fact that she was in exile on the same island that her mom had been exiled to. And I can't imagine what that must have been like for her. But Agrippina continued to be a badass who took absolutely zero shit even in exile. At some point in her imprisonment, she lost an eye in a beating from a centurion. And we're assuming that was for mouthing off because that's totally something she would do. Totally something she'd do. Right. Defiant until the end, this incredibly brave woman was eventually left alone to starve to death. She was 47 years old. Tacitus called Agrippina a woman great for her courage. And honestly, I feel like that is the understatement of the century. Yeah, it's one of those things in the research that like my heart clenched a little bit when I read that line. Yeah, I feel like Agrippina the Elder is the person who haunts me in this story because she's just such a tragic figure. I mean, they all are, but I, I feel like she's a really tragic figure right now. With the death of Agrippina the Elder and not that Nero, the four younger children, Caligula, Agrippina the Younger, Julia Drusilla, and Julia Lavilla, 
were sent to live with their grandmother, Germanicus's mom, Antonia Minor. So the oldest surviving child, Drusus, he was around 21 years old. He was married to a woman named Amelia Lepida. And Jenny, this was not a love match. Amelia Lepida spent her days publicly accusing her husband of one wrongdoing or another. The ancient sources don't tell us a lot about her, except that she committed adultery with a slave. And possibly she also committed adultery with Sejanus because she told Sejanus some kind of dirt about her husband, probably made up, that resulted in Drusus's imprisonment in the dungeon on the Palatine. Can we just stop a second and discuss the elephant in the room, which was Sejanus seducing all of these secrets out of people? I know. I mean, he must have been so tired from the seduction. Sejanus takes his pants off and all of a sudden you have to tell him the truth. It's like a truth serum. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> it's like his, his dick was a truth serum. Like, what even is that? <laughs> How does it work, Sejanus? Please don't take off your pants and flash me. I don't want to tell you my deepest, darkest secrets. No, no. I think you're okay. I think think you'll be all right. There's enough years. Sejanus did have to sit on the naughty stairs, so I think we're safe from him. Yeah, he did. So anyway... Sejanus, he of the truth serum penis, was about to really have things go south. See, Antonia Minor was one of the most badass grandmothers in antiquity. She's kind of like a cross between like a really literary lady who has a giant literary salon and like Angela Lansbury in Murder, She Wrote. Yes, exactly that. Yeah, she's like figuring things out. She's putting two and two together. She's all subtle about it. Nobody takes her seriously, but like, you know, she's watching everything. She does not miss anything. When Antonia Minor was younger, she'd refused the Emperor Augustus's orders to remarry, which was something that took a lot of spine. And now she was looking after Germanicus's four younger kids in a home that was run like a literary salon, where she entertained educated and wealthy visiting dignitaries. And Antonia Minor was on to Sejanus. She saw his attempts to undermine not just Germanicus's family, but Tiberius himself. So she sent a very strongly worded letter, and this is the ancient world. The strongly worded letters are just sort of flying fast and furious between Rome and Capri at this point. Everybody's writing hand is cramped, and so she sent this letter to Tiberius detailing all the naughty things Sejanus had gotten up to, including having poisoned Tiberius' son. And that was kind of the end of Sejanus. So if you want to know more details about what happened to him, the story picks up in Praetorian Guard Part 1. He was made to sit on the naughty stairs, along with his whole family. And in that episode, you'll learn what that means. Sejanus got his due, but poor Drusus was still in prison. So after Sejanus died, Drusus stayed in prison for another two years before he starved to death, reduced to eating the stuffing from his mattress. Drusus's diary of imprisonment was so upsetting that the Senate and Tiberius felt his captivity had been too long to ever let him go. And this just absolutely baffles my brain. Yeah, this doesn't make any sense to me. I, I don't understand why they wouldn't let him go. I think what they were getting at to me when I when I read this was not just that his diary of imprisonment was so awful, but like he had been treated so badly. And if they ever let him go, like if people ever saw what they had reduced the son of Germanicus to, I think the people would literally rip Tiberius off his throne. Or maybe his mental state was so dire that they thought he'd never adjust to the outside world. But that also just doesn't make any sense. I mean, it's probably more that 
Drusus was a rallying point and Tiberius was still nervous about that. You say that, but it's possible starvation and isolation for that long. He might have really, you know, that he might have not had much left there. Yeah, but then the solution to him starving is not to just starve him some more. No, it's to quietly kill him in a peaceful way. I don't understand. Like, I just don't understand anything about this story. But it does make sense that the people would have maybe revolted if they'd seen what Tiberius had done to Germanicus's son. That does make sense. That's from what I extracted from the research. There wasn't a lot about Drusus, but that's what I got. So our poor, poor prince Drusus died in 33 AD. He was 25 years old. And then there were four. The four surviving children were Agrippina the Younger, Caligula, Julia Lavilla, and Julia Drusilla. These four siblings had been drawn together through hardship. They had seen the death of their parents, the death of their two older brothers. They had been forged in a crucible of hardship, loss, and betrayal. All they had to hold on to was each other and the beliefs their parents had instilled in them. Love, family, and decency, even when the world is anything but. Make sure you download our next episode, which will be live in two weeks, to find out how these four orphans would change the shape of the Roman Empire forever. That's all for today. We are going to be back in two weeks. And in the meantime, you can find us on Twitter at Ancient Hist Fan, on Facebook and Instagram at Ancient History Fangirl, and on our website at ancienthistoryfangirl.com. And don't forget to subscribe. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, SoundCloud, whatever you're listening to it on now, and wherever else podcasts hang out. And if you like what we do, please consider leaving us a review. It really, really helps in the ratings and helps spread the word out to other people. Yeah. And if you want to help us keep going we have a super easy way for you to do that just go to our website ancienthistoryfangirl.com and click on the link on the homepage that says buy us a latte this helps us keep the lights on and pay for things like recording equipment sound editing hosting services research materials and caffeinated beverages because we really just cannot stop with the caffeine and also war elephant style drinks and elephant cocktails Thank you guys so much. Your help and also your listening ears are always so deeply appreciated. Yeah, thank you so much. 